that families have traditions, culture has traditions, when, especially when the holiday is running in, you know, we have all these traditions. In my family, one of our traditions is right after Thanksgiving, that Friday after Thanksgiving, we put up the Christmas tree and we start decorating the house for Christmas. Some of you guys are a little early. You jumped a gun on that. But in our house, that is our tradition. Except for this year, we got a little lazy, and that tree didn't go up until Sunday because our son, because he's really traditional, says we have to put that up. But we have all those traditions. You know, growing up, my mom had a tradition that she would always in our stockings put like a little Nerf gun or some kind of thing that the brothers can go out. If you don't know, I have three old brothers. We could go out in the backyard, and we could shoot each other and have fun on Christmas Day. And that tradition lasted until we were actually adults, until grown men received airsoft guns in their stockings that resulted in a, but it might, it might be resurrected with the grandkids, we'll see. But whatever your traditions are, families and cultures, we have these traditions around the holidays, especially Christmas. We gather together, we have traditional meals, we have traditional gatherings and so much more. But in the midst of all of these, it's so important that we find those faith traditions that, gr- that ground us and cement us in the truth of why we are celebrating. In our family, we, we look to like Advent calendars or uh, family or Christian um, um, Christmas devotionals to help remind us again and remind the kids, train the kids up in why we are celebrating this season. And these things can become tradition, and if they're just tradition, yeah, they become, you become used to them, and they just become maybe another backdrop to this season. But if we remember what they are and what they're pointing to, they can remind us again of why we are celebrating. And Advent is like that. As when we do this, we're reminding ourselves again why we are celebrating. We're reminding ourselves again, why should we have hope? And actually, the, the, the progression of lighting candles each Sunday leading up to Christmas is, kind of fills us with that anticipation that the arrival is happening. And it kind of reflects that anticipation that the Jewish people might have had as they were longing and expecting their Savior to come. And they were waiting for this. And again, we're kind of reflecting that and and God was going to fulfill his promises. They had this hope that God was going to be true to his word. And we have that same hope. That same hope that we have seen how he has been true to his word. We have seen how he does what he has promised. And so we have confidence in that hope. This is not a blind kind of wishful kind of, oh, I just hope this will happen. But this is a firm hopeful confidence that God keeps his word and God fulfills his promises. And so we remember that. And as we read in Matthew, the nativity passage of how Jesus is told he's going to be born, how he's born, we see again how God fulfills his word, and he gives us hope because of that. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to be reading in verse 18. And chances are this is a very familiar passage to all of us, but again, let's, when we read this, let's see it or strive to see it with those new eyes as we see what God has to say for us. Starting in verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. People like to celebrate Jesus being born. In fact, I would say it's probably the easiest thing in the Christian calendar to celebrate. People love Christmas time, probably not even just for the presents or all the festivities, but they find it pretty easy to celebrate and remember baby Jesus. People like babies, right? We just had all these babies up here, and what we, well, oh, they're cute. And that's what we feel about babies. They're cute. And babies don't really demand anything of you except for sleepless nights and changing diapers and feeding them. But besides that, they really don't demand you to follow them. They don't demand you to give your life for them. They don't demand your time and attention beyond just those things I said. But they don't really demand these lasting things. And so it's easy to like babies. I think that's why the culture is fine with Christmas. They like babies. And baby Jesus is safe. He's just a baby. He's cute, right? I think the timeless film, if you remember that scene, they're saying the prayer before the mill, and Ricky Bobby says this prayer to the baby Jesus. And in a very elaborate and full way, he just goes on to describe this baby Jesus. And people argue, and it just makes an argument, and he basically says this statement, I like the baby version best. And I think that just illustrates our, our culture. We like baby Jesus because he's safe in that manger. He has yet to live for us. He has yet to die for us. He has yet to rise for us. He has yet to call us to follow him. It's safe to like baby Jesus. But we know baby Jesus didn't say baby Jesus. But he came and we remember his birth because it points to who he is. But we like to look at this baby and we say, ah, Look at the sweet baby. But a pastor I follow named Joe Thorne, he says the point of Christmas is not to say ah, but to be in awe of God who came to save us. The point is not to look and, 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 and kind of remember how Jesus was a baby. The point is to look and reflect upon one of the greatest miracles in all of history that God came down. The incarnation, if you want that fancy, fancy language, the fact that he took on flesh. The son, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh, was willing to be born, not live, perfectly in the light of his father. So that when now he stepped in our place and died for us, we would not only have our sins put on him as he represented us perfectly, but now we could stand in his right standing before our just and holy God. This is what we celebrate. Without the incarnation, there is no salvation. Without the incarnation, there is no cross that awaits. We celebrate this season because this is the foundation of what we believe, that God loved us so much that he would send his son to die for us. Not because we deserve it, not because we've done something to achieve it, not because we were the good people. No, he did it for a bunch of sinners like you and me. And so we celebrate this, but it's so easy just to go through the motions on a Christmas morning or a Christmas season because we are so familiar with what's happening. And familiarity tends to rob us of that wonder. And when we come this Christmas season and we reflect again and again of who Jesus is, we should be filled with wonder. 
awe of who God is, awe of the Christ who's willing to step into our place. And when we read the book of Matthew, and we see in Matthew this, this um, what should we take from this? And I would argue we should pull this away from this. Is our, pro- our hope is in our promise-keeping God. That's where our hope is grounded, our hope is found, is that we have a God who speaks and then acts. We have a God who says he's going to do something, and then he does it to the uttermost. We have a God who keeps his promises and brings salvation as he said he's going to bring it. Our hope is in our promise-keeping God. And when we read Matthew, we see references again and again to the promises of God and how God now fulfills them in Jesus Christ. And Matthew, one of the big, big promises that Jesus is told to fulfill is this promise of the promised child. If you guys remember through the book of the Bible, again and again, we see this promise of a promised child coming, being stated and kind of intensified and grounded. That from the very first book, Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned and they rebelled against God, and God is, is giving the curses to man and woman, and then he turns to the serpent, and in the midst of this curse to the serpent, he says this, one of the greatest promises there is, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is like the first promise, the little, the first kind of hint of this gospel. This seed, this offspring will conquer the serpent that deceived his mother and father. And so this, this, this little promise that there's coming this, this, this offspring that's going to save the people, and we see it again and again, this promised child being this theme that has developed from Abraham being promised that he'll have a child that's going to make his descendants more numerous than the, the stars in the sky. This, this promise that is bigger than Isaac could fulfill. And then again, and with Isaac and then Jacob, this promised child is kind of hinted at and established all the way to David, this king after God's own heart. And he's given this promise that there will come a descendant Descended from him, a son from him, who's going to reign forever, sit on his throne. And then we get the prophets, and we see in Isaiah and the other prophets that's mentioned again and again, this promised child is coming. And so the whole Jews people were, were waiting with expectation and with hope. The promised child is going to come. That God had promised this child to come, a child who's going to defeat the serpent, a child who's going to make Abraham's descendants descendants greater numbers than the stars in the sky, a child who's going to sit on David's throne and reign forever, a child who's going to save his people. This promise is threaded throughout the Bible, and then now we see in Matthew how Jesus fulfills this promise. We got to read this account and we see this, how Jesus is at fulfillment of his promise. We get some hints here. When the angel appears to Joseph, what does he call Joseph? He says, hey, Joseph, son of David. You have to imagine at that statement, Joseph would have perked up a little bit. Because Joseph was descended from David. David wasn't his father. He didn't go around saying, hey, I'm Joseph, son of David. You know, his name was Joseph Bar Jacob. His dad was Jacob. And in that, in that time, that culture, you were known by who you are and who your father was. And so he would be Joseph Bar Jacob. But now the angel comes and addresses him, Joseph, son of David. And you got to imagine all of a sudden now Joseph says, wait, is it true? The promise that, that's coming through my lineage, the promise of a, a, waited, a waited king who's going to reign forever, is this happening now? 
You can imagine that he's maybe, his hope was starting to stir as the angel addressed him in such a way. But the angel doesn't even stop there. He continues by quoting from Isaiah, Isaiah 7, 14, about how the virgin was going to conceive and, and give birth to the son and, and, and how it would be Emmanuel, the God with us. And so you see the angel now taking these different strands of biblical thought and weave them together to show how Jesus is going to fulfill all these promises of, who, of, of what God has spoken. These promises of this child that was going to come. He's weaving these together that the promised ruler descended from David is going to be the same promised child from Isaiah 7 who's going to be the same. Do you think this maybe explains why Joseph woke up, woke up and did what the angel said he was going to do? Because of this hope that maybe this child was going to be it, was going to be that Messiah? I mean, I'm sure the angel of visitation didn't hurt. But these, these promises threaded through and being saying they're going to be fulfilled in this child would have stirred this hope in Joseph. But the angel didn't even scratch the surface of all the promises that are filled, fulfilled in Christ. All the promises of God that we find their completion and their amen and yes in Christ, which is why Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is why it's through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. That when we remember the birth of Jesus, we are remembering how God keeps his promises. When we reflect upon the fact that Jesus was born as God said he was going to be, and he's going to be the person who God said he was going to be, when we reflect upon that, we're reminding ourselves of one fundamental fact about who God is, that he is trustworthy. He is dependable that what he says happens and he brings his promises to fulfillment. When you know someone who, who fulfills their... And if they say they're going to do something, you're like, man, that seems really unlikely you're going to do that. That's going to be hard on you, but they, you depend upon them. You trust them because they have established that witness. And so when we reflect upon who God is, we see how again and again he's established himself as that trustworthy God, that dependable God who does what he has said he's going to do, who fulfills all the promises. That now when he speaks and he says, hey, I'm going to love you guys no matter what, we can say, yes, we trust in that. Even though that sounds crazy, even we could not do that. We understand that, but we trust in you. Why? Because you are trustworthy and dependable, and what you say you're going to do, you do. That we start to trust God, even when we look at his redemption plan and say, man, this does not look like how I would plan it. We trust him because we know he's dependable. We know he's trustworthy. We know he, do, he does what he says he's going to do. Our hope is in our promise-keeping God. But when we read in Matthew, we also see what is their specific hope? What were they hoping for in this child? Well, we see that first element when the angel visits Joseph in his dream and he says, hey, in verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall name, you shall, and, uh, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Where their hope lies. Because in that name, that simple name of Jesus, that we, we are so familiar with is the Latinized Greek version of the Hebrew name Yahshua, which is the same name as Joshua. So all that means is Joshua, Jesus is the same name, just different languages and how they were passed down to us. But this name means the Lord saves. 
And also this, this name has a rich history. If you guys know your Bible, it's Joshua, who was the understudy from Moses, who led the people into the promised land. He, he helped God fulfill, or God fulfilled through him, one of those great promises that they would get the promised land. And so people would name their kids Joshua, Joshua, because they were recognizing that God keeps his promises. He saves. And so you can imagine, this is not a unique name around this time. It was, it's not like there was one you know, Yahshua around being born. This was a popular name back then as people remembered and reflected upon who God is. But we see what the name means that God, the Lord saves is expressing that rich hope they had, that they trust that God saves, not, and not just any salvation, not just a salvation from enemies, not just a salvation from hardship. No, a salvation, as I said, as the angel says, because he will save his people from their sins. That the angel is telling them, what is the salvation that this, this child will bring, this hope that they will bring, is that he will save them. This is a hope that goes further than making Israel great again. This is a hope further than just no national pride. This is a hope that goes to the core of the trouble of humanity. That their sins could be forgiven. That what keeps them away from God, their holy and just Father, could be removed. That they could have a relationship with their God once again. And it has the sense of once and for all. And we who know Jesus and stand now on the other side of the cross and resurrection know how he did this. That he stood in our place. That he was that lamb of God who took upon our sins to give us his righteousness this language of the priesthood that they would recognize that somehow he was going to be that intermediate, that, that intercede for us between us and God and bring us that salvation. But that's not the only hope that they had in this passage. For we see they also have this hope from that Isaiah quotation that he would be Emmanuel, God with us. Humanity was made to be with God. Humanity, since we were formed, since God took the time and molded, was made to be with God. But since Adam and Eve, our, our forefathers, since they went astray, we now are broken and we have this condition of sin that keeps us away from God. And what we're made to be and what we're made to do and what we're, the relationship we're fundamentally longing for and yearning for, we can no longer have. And so now when we see the story of the Bible, we see, we see God pursuing his people, but he has to do it through intermediaries, that there's, there's a barrier between them. And so when he comes down now, his vision is not true who he is. He didn't walk with them like he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. But now he, he establishes his presence in the tabernacle, but they have to go through Moses. They have to go through the priesthood. Or he speaks to his people, but they have to go through the prophets. And so you see this barrier, there's these layers between God and man, and but there's this longing that there will be a day, there will be a time when he is with us as he's meant to be with us. And we will be with him as we were designed to be. And Jesus brings this about. As the God-man God who steps in the flesh lives as one of us and he now walks intimately and is with us intimately, more intimately than any other time since God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And we have that hope and that sense 
as he's bringing this to fulfillment, as he walked with us, and now how he indwells within us, that there will come a day that will be with us as we are designed to be. We see that in Revelation. Revelation 21, verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be with his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Is Jesus, through his sacrifice, through his life, that makes this possible? Is Jesus that ushers in this new reality of God being with us and us being with God as we are supposed to be? that Jesus fulfills this great promise of God that he will be with us. Our promise is in our, our hope is in our promise-keeping God. Just marvel for a second at how encompassing this hope is. That Jesus, through these sort quotations as he put in the points to the promises and, and the fulfillments and the hope that they have, we see how Jesus really encompasses all that people need. He actually encompasses what people call the threefold offices of, of the, of, of, that God has given to the people to relate to his people. That, that God has given us kings to rule in his stead and to represent him. That God has given us prophets to speak on his behalf. That God has given us priests to kind of in, stand in his place and kind of relate to the people. And now we see Jesus coming through these short things, the promises of God, showing how this, all we need is Jesus to stand before us and in him we can have God as we're supposed to have him. As we stand on the other side of these birth narratives, we see that we just have that part, this is just that part of the story that gives hope about what's going to come next. We know what comes next, and we see that hope, and we know that our hope should be more assured than this hope because we know what comes next, and we know how he completed that just as much as he was born for us. It should fill us with hope that we know that God keeps his promises and he's going to do what he said he's going to do. Our hope is in our promise-keeping God. So what does this mean for this Christmas season? What does this mean as we reflect upon Advent or as we gather together as family or as we gather together as, as the people of God? I will offer you this takeaway that I hope encourages all of us. That as we celebrate how God kept his promises when he sent his son, we reflect that that means and builds our trust that he's going to keep all of his promises that builds our trust, and that he's going to be true to his word. I love the reasoning that Paul gives in Romans when he says, he who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him for us all, how will he not, along with him, give us all things? Would he not fulfill those other things he said he was going to do? Why would he not give you what you need? Why would he fall short now? No, this Christmas season, as we reflect upon who Christ is and how he fulfilled God's word as he was born for us, we reflect upon the trustworthiness of God, and we know that he keeps his promises, and all the promises of God will be fulfilled, and we can find them in Jesus. As we stand here today, as we stand, as I said, on the other side, not only of his birth and his, his, his crucifixion and his resurrection and his ascension, we now stand in the last part of the story and we have one big hope left. 
Because we look around and we say, God, is this it? The world still seems broken. The world still seems wrong. I still go through hardship. My family is going through pain. We have people dying. And we wonder, where is the hope? And we say, we have one hope left. That Jesus is coming back again. That we have this hope that awaits us, this big promises that Jesus is going to come as that king. He's going to come as that savior. He's going to complete his salvation for us. He's going to usher us into the presence of God. He's going to bring his kingdom like it was meant to be, and we will be with God, and God will be with us. This is the great promise. We pain and evil of this world is going to be cast out, and we will be with God as we were designed to be with God, and we hope and expect and await this. And that is our hope because Jesus and God said they're going to do it. And so this Christmas season, as we see how God fulfills his word, we reflect upon how trustworthy he is and we hope with confidence that if God said this is true, it's going to happen. No matter what goes on in this world and we feel that pain and we go through that suffering and the ups and downs and whatever have you, we can trust in this hope because God said it's, he's going to do it. And we trust in our promise-keeping God. And so this season, as we celebrate Christmas, we look back and we see throughout history how God is a God of his word. But we also look forward and we trust and God, and what he's going to do, and what he's doing now. If you're a Christian, I would pray that you use this for your family, that you show the trustworthiness of who God is, that you use this to build your family's faith, and your faith, and you reflect upon this. If you do not know Jesus, I reflect that you look at this, and, and go once again, and look back, and trust him, and how his word is true. And then I pray that we can use this to talk to other people, that when we talk to them and we show who God is and show people who Jesus is, we can show that God keeps his word, that he fulfills his promises, that he is trustworthy. Because our hope is in our promise-keeping God. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, praise be your name, for you are good. Lord, praise be your name, for you are our God. Lord, we, we love you, we, we seek you, we pray for the season that as we reflect upon all the things that you have done for us, all the, the blessings that you've poured out on us again and again, that we can re spend the season reflecting upon this great blessing of your Son. That encourages us to see how you keep the, your word. That encourages us to see your love and your what you're willing to go through to bring about your salvation, your redemption plan. Lord, I pray for this season that once again we can reflect upon the truth of who Jesus is. We love you, Lord, and we seek you. and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.